Good evening, Grace Church. Thank you to our musicians. That was lovely to sing of Christ and the redemption that he purchased for us. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 7. We have quite a bit to get through this evening. (laughs) You'll remember by way of introduction that at the end of Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die, and while Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, the rich man ends up in a place of torment. Knowing that he cannot escape his suffering, he pleads with Abraham to at least send someone back to his brothers so that they would not end up in a place of torment. Abraham tells him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man replies, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham responds, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. But you would think, right? (laughs) You would think like if an unbeliever saw someone rise from the dead, you you would think if an unbeliever saw one of Yahweh's wonders, They would certainly believe. I mean, if they saw the Nile turn blood red and frogs in the millions and and gnats and flies and then the livestock of the Egyptians die and then the Egyptians get boils and then there's hail and there's locusts and then Egypt turns dark and then God smites all of the firstborn of the Egyptians and, and then they walk across the Red Sea on dry land and there's walls of water on each side and They get in the desert and they're thirsty. And Jesus stands on a rock and floods the desert with fresh water. You would think that they would all believe that you would be so desperately wrong because almost all of them died and perished. I think in part we think that they would believe because we think we would have believed. We we think far too highly of our capability without Christ. But before Christ, we're all dead, like not mostly dead, (laughs) completely dead. We cannot see, we cannot hear. Israel, with their physical eyes, they, they saw Yahweh's hand working in the plagues, but they were blind to see the face of the one working those miracles. Because only God, through his word, only through Moses and the prophets, as Jesus puts it, can make a man live again. Only God can give us faith to see him. And so tonight, I I want us to to wonder at Yahweh's wonders. I want us to, to marvel at his majesty and his power, but most of all, that we would wonder that we've been given eyes of faith to see the God behind the wonders, that we would marvel most at the fact that God gave us life. You, a, a wicked, grumbling, complaining, ungrateful sinner, God chose to redeem you. How could you not be thankful? If not for Jesus' grace to us, we would all be just like Israel, standing here wondering at God's wonders and then dying and spending eternity in hell. So tonight we're going to hit this section here, Exodus 7 through 18. We're going we're to marvel together at four of Yahweh's wonders that should bow us low in thankfulness to him for eternal redemption. Four of Yahweh's wonders. First, the plagues, then the Passover, then the passage through the Red Sea, and finally, provision. Plagues, Passover, passage, and 
provision. We'll start by just reading the first five verses of Exodus 7, and then we're going to jump around as quickly as we can. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I set you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will set my hand upon Egypt and bring out my hosts, the people, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do thank you for the eyes of faith that you've given us, but we we would beg you that you would increase our faith, that your spirit would illuminate our minds and strengthen our hearts to, to marvel at your wonders and to live in thankful obedience to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 1, right, says that that Moses is going to be like God to Pharaoh. Moses is essentially the physical representative of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one working, right? In fact, even Moses' staff multiple times is called the staff of God uh, because Yahweh is really the one doing the work, right? He's the one striking the Nile. Yahweh is the one bringing the frogs. He's the one killing Egypt's firstborn. And he's doing all of these wonders, Because he wants to show all of his power, which, you know, he really has to harden Pharaoh's heart because any reasonable man would have let Israel go before they got to the 10th plague, right? And so that's that's what we see in verse 3. The newborn baby cry is just such a unique, wonderful sound. But... uh, they also need the Holy Spirit like we do to <laughs> understand the Bible. <laughs> okay, so God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because I want to do all these wonders and show my power. And, and Moses kind of just mentions that. He doesn't explain this mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I think he doesn't because he's already explained this principle. Way back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Remember, Joseph tells his brother, you meant it for evil, and God, what? Meant it for good. So it's not, if we look closely, it's not, you meant it for evil, and now God is turning it into good. It's not that God is some really good chess player that can react to evil and turn it into something that's good. No, the verbs are concurrent. They're simultaneously. You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Joseph is saying, you sold me into slavery with evil intent and God sold me into slavery with good in his heart. That's the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is so sovereign that he works out his good purposes even through wicked men. So here in Exodus, Yahweh is sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart in such a way in which Pharaoh alone is responsible for hardening his own heart. That's an amazing and mysterious thing to us that we cannot understand. 
But the point in the text is simply that God wants Pharaoh to harden his heart so that he can do all these amazing miracles and, and reveal his name to the world. You notice in verse 5 right, that he wants the Egyptians to know. We'll see later on that he wants his name to go forth to all the earth. Because right? Rahab needs to get saved. Because there's, there's people around the world that need to hear about Yahweh and come to faith in him. We'll see in the Exodus when they cross the Red Sea that there's a multitude of foreigners who go with the Israelites. Well, in verse 9, we see kind of this preliminary proof plague that Moses' staff turns into a snake. In verse 11, I have no idea how the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians, are able to sort of duplicate this and transform their staffs. Is Satan involved? Is it simply trickery? Uh, The text doesn't say. But Moses' miracle obviously trumps theirs because Moses' snake eats all of their snakes, which is hilarious to me uh, that, you know, the world is trying to, to come up with things and do things as good as God does, and obviously they can't. Well, to, to walk through the plagues, I'll, I'll mostly kind of talk about them in general. I'll have a few comments, but just, just two observations in general about these plagues. Uh, the first is, I think the best way to understand these first nine plagues are as a miraculous acceleration of many of God's established laws of nature. Right? These are not just natural events, especially in light of the fact that the plagues discriminate against the Egyptians and the Israelites are protected. It's very unnatural. It's very miraculous for it to be dark at the Egyptians' houses and bright as day at the Israelite houses. But at the same time, God brings about these plagues through natural means. He uses means. The the Nile suffers this sort of incredibly powerful red tide. And then obviously all the frogs come out, but not in normal numbers. There's a miraculous multiplication of millions of frogs. Then then the frogs die out and the, the gnats sort of multiply miraculously upon the frog carcasses. So much that even the Egyptians, Egyptian magicians say, this is the finger of God. This is not natural. Then the flies multiply on top of the gnats. And God uses some sort of contagion, uh, right? Some sort of skin anthrax, many commentators say, that probably started back in the Nile. But it kills all of the Egyptian livestock. Doesn't transfer any Israeli livestock, but kills all the Egyptian. Then, then it transfers to the people through the livestock. And that's really kind of one of the most miraculous parts of these plagues is how they're discriminating against the Egyptians, right? decimating the Egyptians and leaving the Hebrews unscathed. The second principle I think that's important to understand is that in Exodus 12, 12, God says that the, the ten plagues were his war against the Egyptian gods. I mentioned that last time, that he's executing all the gods of the Egyptians. And we can't mention every Egyptian god because they're innumerable. They worship literally everything. There's the Nile god, happy. There's frog god. There's fly god. There's rain god. But the two big ones are at the end, right? Ra, the sun god, the The major god in the Egyptian pantheon, he gets turned off in darkness in the ninth plague. And then the future Pharaoh, the son of Ra, he gets killed in the tenth plague when the firstborn dies. Well, just just a few details as we jump through. The first plague, the Nile turns to blood. What's interesting is the magicians, they can kind of mimic that and turn fresh water to red water, but they can't undo the plague, right? They can't turn the Nile back to fresh water. 
Uh, we also see that the, the first plague lasted about one week in verse 25, 725. So I think that's how most of them go. The, the ten plagues are going to last a couple of months in time. And Pharaoh's pretty much unscathed from that because he can just have his own wells separately that he digs. But then plague two, the frogs, Moses says, they're everywhere. They're in, they're in Pharaoh's palace. Uh, they're annoying everyone. The mosquitoes, the gnats, that's the third plague. That's when the Egyptian magicians say, this is not <laughs> something that we can duplicate. This is, this is divine. And then the flies, and that's where we start to see kind of the, the main distinction there, that the flies are congregating with the Egyptians and not with uh, the Hebrews. And it's also Pharaoh's first kind of capitulation. You know, he, he finally says, okay, you can go. And for the rest of the plagues, we get this, okay, you can go. And then God takes away the plague and he changes his mind and he doesn't keep his word. And that's contrasted throughout the plagues with the phrase, and it happened just as Yahweh said. So you have this contrast here that Pharaoh always breaks his word and Yahweh always keeps his word. He's the only one strong enough and powerful enough to always do what he says. When we get to the livestock at the fifth plague, Moses condemns Pharaoh and says that Pharaoh's sin is that he's holding back God's people from worshiping him. And God takes that very seriously. It's a terrible sin that God would not allow for Pharaoh to keep his people from worshiping him. Yahweh is a great God and must be worshipped. So God strikes down most of the Egyptian livestock. That's also the first time in chapter 9, verse 7, that Pharaoh confirms that the Hebrews are not being affected by the plagues. None of the Hebrew livestock died. When we get to the boils in the sixth plague, it starts to get so bad. Verse 11 of chapter 9, that the Egyptians couldn't even stand before Moses. We also get this phrase that I mentioned that, that the plagues were, were sending forth Yahweh's name to the ends of the earth. Uh, notice in verse uh, 16, when the, when the hail comes down, that God says, But indeed, for this reason I've caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Right? The, the glory of Yahweh needed to go out to the whole world. They obviously don't listen. And... This is also there at the hail, Pharaoh's first attempt at, re- at repentance. He says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But Moses knows it's not genuine in verse 30. He knows that Pharaoh doesn't like the consequences of his sin. Pharaoh doesn't want to suffer God's wrath anymore. But he didn't repent. Remember, repentance is an actual change of your life, not just words. Well, the very few crops left over after the hail, the locusts come. They decimate all the crops. It's the first time that the Egyptian people start to turn on Pharaoh. They start taking the sides of the Hebrews and say, Pharaoh, just let them go already. We're all going to be dead. And we get this total reversal that it says at the end of the locust plague that the Egyptians were crying out because they were being enslaved by Moses. (laughs) So when this whole deal started... The Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians, and now the Egyptians are saying, we're being enslaved by the Hebrews. Finally, we get the ninth plague, the darkness, three days of total darkness, which would have been a a very serious judgment of Ra. To imagine that your God could just be shut off like that. Maybe in our day, you know, with, with lights and with flashlights, it wouldn't be such a terrible curse, but in that 
time period. This would have been terrible. It absolutely infuriates Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives Moses the second death threat he received from a Pharaoh. First time when he was 40, now when he's 80. This one says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses never sees him again. In fact, when, when Pharaoh lets the people go at the end of the 10th plague, he just sends a messenger to Moses. So by this point, you know, what, what's, what's the conclusion? What, what's our takeaway? Well, there is no other God like Yahweh. There's no one like him. All the world's gods are powerless before Yahweh. Which begs the question for us, why would you worship the gods of this world? They will all die before Lord Yahweh. No other God can stand before him. All false religions, all woke ideologies, all the idols worshipped by this culture, they're no match for Yahweh. Additionally, I think we really should just increase our gratitude and our thankfulness to God for for rescuing us out of these false religions, out of the worship of these false gods. I think we can get so prideful sometimes as Christians that our minds have been renewed and we see things that, you know, the way that they are. When we start to interact with the utter foolishness of our culture, our culture who doesn't know what a baby is and doesn't know what a woman is, and they're just so confused, and we start to laugh at them. But remember... It's not because you're so smart and you're so wise that you're not bowing down before a sun god or a frog god. That's exactly what you'd be doing. That's exactly what I'd be doing if it wasn't for Christ. If it wasn't for him redeeming us and saving us and giving us his spirit to illuminate us and change us. Right? We would all be headlong down the Romans 1 road of being turned over to a depraved mind to, to think utter foolishness. We ought to wonder and marvel at the fact that God redeemed us and saved us out of the worship of these pathetic gods that this world invents. Well, second wonder, chapter 11, the Passover. The last plague, the 10th plague, the Passover. And I think the biggest change between the nine plagues and the 10th plague is found in verse 4, Exodus eleven four. 4. In the first nine plagues, God is working through means, and in this last plague, Yahweh says, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Now Yahweh is going to directly attack the Egyptians' firstborn. Not just the boys. In 1230, it says that in every house, someone died. Now, oftentimes people ask, "Is, is that right? Like, is this... Is this fair? Is this right for Yahweh to be killing all of these children? Well, of course, if Yahweh is doing, if Yahweh is doing it, it is right and just and fair. We heard about this morning. Everything that Yahweh does is righteous. We don't want fair from Yahweh. Right? Fair would have been for God to kill all the Egyptians. In fact, fair would be for God to have killed every single inhabitant of the world. We're all born in sin, all children of wrath. It is God's mercy that any of us get past infancy because we all deserve to die. Well, we see another reversal in verse 6, Exodus eleven six. 6. Remember, back in chapter 3, Israel was wailing, crying out under their slavery, and now same verb, Egypt is wailing. All of Egypt is going to be wailing, crying out loudly, verse 7, 
but not even a dog will bark among the Israelites. It's going to be a complete and serene calm. Such will be the distinction. That takes us to to chapter 12, where we see the Passover lamb. Such an important event in the life of Israel, such an important event for us. Verse 2, we see that God wants them to change their entire calendar and start every year with the Passover to remember. Each family, verse 3, needed to slaughter one lamb. They couldn't finish a lamb. They needed to invite a neighboring family. So much symbolism here. We're walking on holy ground. Christ obviously is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He, our Messiah, his one body broken for his family. The lamb, verse 5, needed to be male, just turned adult, without blemish, obviously symbolizing the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And I think part of what the Israelite needed to be thinking was like, well, why? Why are we killing this lamb? Why are we slaughtering this lamb? Well, obviously, first of all, it's communicating that a substitute is needed. Like, I deserve to die for my sin, and so something's got to die in my place. But I also think that, that the Israelites should have been thinking, like, how could killing a lamb save me from wrath? Like, why does putting some blood on the doorpost actually save us? And I think God intended for them to realize, like, it can't. It, it, it's, it's simply an expression of faith in Yahweh and in his deliverance. Right? They, they should have realized, okay, okay, God is telling me that, that if we put this blood over the doorpost, that he'll pass over, that he'll spare us. All, all of us who publicly express our faith in him by putting this blood on the post, Yahweh is going to redeem us. So I'm, I'm trusting, I'm putting this blood on the post because I'm trusting that this lamb's death will be used by God for my deliverance. Which obviously, again, points us to Jesus. It's, it's faith in his sacrifice that saves us. Another illustration that runs through this, this chapter is the idea that they needed to eat the Passover meal with great haste. They needed to be ready to, to run. They needed to, verse 8, roast the meat with no setup, no wash up. Uh, chapter 12, verse 10, leave none for breakfast. They were going to have to just get up and run in the morning. And verse 12, once again, Exodus 12, 12, Yahweh was executing his judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Yahweh wanted to not only help them to see Christ, but, but also to reject all of Egypt's false gods. And he wanted his people to, to completely renounce them. But we'll learn later on that the people were too idolatrous. When, when the Egyptians gave them their golden idols... Uh, in the Exodus, they not only took those golden idols across the Red Sea with them, then in the desert, they bowed down and worshiped them. I mean, can you imagine how foolish, like the gods that Yahweh just demolished in the plagues, and now you're bowing down and worshiping, worshiping them. Well, the Passover was such a, an amazing thing. God didn't want them to just celebrate one day. They had a whole week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a week to remember, a week to commemorate what God had done. And so every generation needed to be trained. Every generation needed to be catechized to remember God's deliverance. In verse 15, we see anyone who ate leaven during that week was cut off from divine blessing and condemned. In chapter 15, verse 23, it, it speaks of Yahweh smiting the Egyptians and then 
Moses mentions the destroyer who's actually going to be killing the firstborn. I think based on Jude chapter 5, that's probably Jesus. We'll look at that a little bit later. But if so, the point is that the Son of God is killing the Son of Ra. Absolute, total victory. Now, additionally, what we see in these three chapters about the Passover, we see that when Yahoo is passing over the Israelites, he was purchasing them. They went from being slaves of Pharaoh to being slaves of Yahweh. Uh, literally in Hebrew in verse 25, Exodus 12, 25, God calls it a, a slavery, sort of new slavery. The, the children are going to ask, what, what's the meaning of this slavery? And they were supposed to answer, this is the Passover sacrifice. When Yahweh passed over our houses, smote the Egyptians, and purchased us as a people for himself. And so like we saw last time, in verse 27, Exodus 12, 27, they bowed low and worshipped. And it happens exactly as God foretold in verse 29. Yahweh goes out into the, the people and struck down all the firstborn of the people of Egypt. Verse 30, the Egyptians arose in the middle of the night, probably not because of sounds, probably to check on their children because Yahweh had just threatened to kill them. And all the firstborn are dead. So Pharaoh sends Moses a message. Go, get out of here. Verse 32, go and bless me also. Right In this momentary lapse of foolishness, temporary moment of reason, Pharaoh asks for a blessing. Notice in verse 38, like I mentioned, a foreign multitude went up with them and left Egypt. Many Egyptians, many other people groups, no doubt that the Egyptians had enslaved. They all go out. And God says, they're all invited to eat everyone who's circumcised, right? Everyone who's circumcised had a right to eat the Passover. But chapter 12, verse 43, no foreigner may eat it. No uncircumcised may eat it. The Passover lamb is not for the world. The Passover lamb is for God's people alone. So Jesus says in John 17, I don't pray for the world. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me. I'm sanctifying myself for them. Christ gave himself for his bride. Verse 46 of chapter 12, we see no broken bones. Christ also obviously had no bone broken. He was a perfect sacrifice. Another interesting fact, God says, no foreigner who's not circumcised could eat it. But every Israelite needed to eat. It was a sin for an Israelite not to eat the Passover lamb. All of God's people must partake, must eat the Passover lamb. That's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in yourself. Well, chapter 13 is a sort of response to what God had done God commands them to remember. Remember this day. Tell your sons about this day. One week to start the year. Just remember God's redemption. Kind of reminds me of the way often many of us in our family celebrate Christmas. That we take a few weeks out of the year just to remember and celebrate and rejoice in Christ's coming. So God commanded Israel to take a week and just cultivate thankfulness for their redemption. You know, children are curious. They're going to ask questions. (laughs) So God says, catechize them, you know, 
Make them memorize God's word. And then right, God starts to lead them. Lead them out of Egypt. There's a, a pillar, not two pillars, one by day, one by night. And one pillar that looked differently in different lights. It looks like fire in the night. It looks like a cloud in the, in the day. And that's, that's the Passover. I mean, quickly. Um, which obviously points us so much to Christ. It's, if a life is to be spared from death, it must be bought by a payment. It must be redeemed by sacrifice. And the only payment that God truly accepts is the sacrifice of a human soul. Right? This is why God had to become a man in Christ. Right? Hebrews 10.5 says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, they can't redeem us because we're not bulls and goats. Right? Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but he says, but a body you have prepared for me. A human body that Christ could live the perfect life that we cannot and die the death that we deserve. And it's our faith in the shedding of his blood that saves us, that causes God to pass over us and not give us the hell that we deserve. We were redeemed. We were purchased by that precious blood. But just imagine by way of application, like put yourself in the shoes of that original generation that experienced the Passover, to, to hear the screams of the Egyptians as they find their children dead and to know that, that Yahweh passed you over. I like to know that you're, you're leaving slavery, you're leaving Egypt, you're headed to a promised land. Like how could you not just in silent wonder express your thankfulness to God who, who redeemed you, who changed you? We all ought to be more thankful for what Christ has done for us when he cried out, it is finished. Well, third wonder, chapter 14 we get the passage, the passage of the Red Sea. And I love how this story begins because God tells them in verse 2 to basically walk around in circles. And it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then he backs them up into the sea. Any rational person would be like, this is so foolish, Moses. Right? Even Pharaoh is like, they're lost. They have no idea where they're going. They're just like wandering around. And that's why it's so important for us to obey exactly what God says, even if we don't understand it, <laughs> especially when we don't understand it. Because God is the only one who understands what he's capable of doing. He's setting them up for a great deliverance. That's what David expresses in, in Psalm 23. Like he feels like he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's like, no, this is the right path. Yahweh's leading me on the righteous path. So Pharaoh thinks they're lost. And he pursues them. I mean, you think of how insane that is, that, that Pharaoh goes after them after the ten plagues. And if that sounds unreasonable, just remember what our pastor often says, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> right? It's Romans 1. God gives him up to a depraved mind. Pharaoh can't think clearly. Unfortunately, Israel is just as irrational. When, when they see the, the chariots coming towards them, they're terrified too. They think they're going to die, right? It's like they see this trial and, and everything that God had done for them just zipped out of their mind and, and they just stopped trusting. How often does that happen to us that we just, what, what am I going to do? What is God going to do? I mean, well, just think about the last 40 years of your life. Has God ever failed you? Has God ever been unfaithful to you? 
Verse 13, 14, 13, you get this great war speech. Moses says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh will fight for you. And what are you going to do? You will keep silent. (laughs) You will do nothing. You will watch as Yahweh works his wonders. Right, if this is showing us what redemption is, this is pointing us to redemption and revealing us what eternal redemption is like, then this message is clear. We don't cooperate with God <laughs> in redemption. Right, we watch. We watch as Yahweh does it all. Well, Israel's backed up against the sea. The chariots are coming. And so the physical manifestation of the angel of the Lord, this cloud, comes and stands in between Pharaoh's army and the Hebrews. And Yahweh miraculously causes this east wind to dry up a path in the sea. Not, not a muddy path. Right, chariots wouldn't have gone after them in the mud. Now, completely dried it out. Put walls of water on each side of Israel. And when Israel has safely crossed over, the pillar moves. And in the most moronic <laughs> battle strategy in the history of mankind, Pharaoh goes in after them, right? Again, sin makes us stubborn. And right when they're in the middle of the sea, God drowns them all. It's an amazing deliverance, an amazing salvation. And again, can you imagine how thankful these people would have been, right? If they're so terrified, these chariots are coming towards them and God just drowns them in the sea. It's an amazing miracle. And a phrase is actually really interesting. It's kind of a theological side note. It's in, there in verse 31 at the very end of the chapter. It says that as a result of this amazing sign, the people of Israel believed Yahweh and believed in his servant Moses. You're like, well, wait, I, I know that God wanted them to believe in Yahweh, but God wants them to believe in Moses? Yeah, in fact... We'll look at it next time, but in Exodus 19.9, God explains to Moses why he's doing all these signs and wonders. And he says that it's so the people may believe in you forever. God says, I want my people to believe you, Moses, forever. Because that's the purpose of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders don't save. Signs and wonders don't sanctify. But they do authenticate God's word forever which does save and sanctify us. God wanted everyone down to today to believe in Moses because Moses was going to write the Torah. And we need to know for sure that Moses wrote these words directed by God. It's the same thing we see in the New Testament about signs and wonders. They're, they're signs of the apostles. Hebrews 2.4, it's God testifying through them with signs and wonders. Well, that takes us to to Moses' song. I know we're just flying through this, but we've got to get through Exodus in four Sundays, so don't have another option. Um, chapter 15, such a beautiful song. Um, just incredible recounting in this poetic language of the crossing of the Red Sea. I think probably verse 1 is uh, sort of exhortation, not just I will sing, but I must sing. I have to sing. God is so mighty. He's so majestic. He's so great. I have to sing. Verse 2, he's my strength. He's my song. 
I love that in, in verse 2, Moses says that he's my God and my father's God. Especially when you start to think about the context of that statement. That Moses is essentially saying, Yahweh is God during the Exodus in my days, and he's, he's God during my father's generation as well. My father who was enslaved to the Egyptians. God is God, is God in good times, and God is God in hard times. And it'd be lovely to go through phrase by phrase in this. We can. It's just a recounting of the, the crossing. But one thing I love, it's like all Christian doctrine. Moses does not just look back at what God had done. He did not just thank God for the past. He, he took God's past faithfulness as a guarantee of future promises. Now, past faithfulness guarantees our future hope. Right, So in verse 13, Exodus 15, 13, Moses knows that the Yahweh is going to lead them to his holy habitation. Because that's what faith does, Hebrews 11. It assures us of the things hoped for. Right? Moses says, verse 13, your chesed, your loving kindness, your loyal love guarantees us that you're going to be loyal and faithful to us tomorrow until the day we die. Verse 14, even the Canaanites, you look how he's looking forward. The inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, Moab, right? They're all trembling because they know we're coming. They know you're going to fulfill your promises to Abraham. They know that we're going to dwell in the land. So verse 20, Miriam. Miriam's nearly 90 years old at this point, remember. And Miriam, she grabs a tambourine and starts singing. She starts dancing. All the women join her in song. I mean, how fun would it be to be a part of that celebration as all of Israel is dancing and rejoicing, their hearts bursting with thankfulness as they sing for joy because they've been freed from bondage. And I wonder if I'm that thankful. I wonder if you're that thankful to just want to just grab a tambourine and dance and just sing and just tell the world what God has done for you knowing, especially for us, that we were delivered because of a far greater exodus. Remember, it's Moses in Christ's transfiguration who's talking to Jesus about his exodus, that he soon was going to leave the world and die and raise again. He would call out, it is finished, when he redeemed us and saved us. How could we not thank God for so great a salvation? Well, fourth and and final wonder, verse 22 of chapter 15, we get provision. God provides so many things in these few chapters here, water and bread and salvation. Notice there in verse 22, once again, God leads them to another location where there's no water. Understandably, the people are thirsty. It's been three days since they found water. So they grumble against Moses. And, and Yahweh performs this sort of anti-plague, right? In the plagues, God was cursing nature, causing water to become bitter. And now here, Yahweh does what the Egyptian magicians couldn't do. He, he takes bitter water and turns it sweet. But notice exactly what it says in verse 25. Really important verb. It says that Yahweh showed Moses a tree. And that verb, show, is the root verb of the noun Torah. The law. And I think it helps us understand 
how God views his Torah, how God views his law. God's Torah is not a list of negative killjoys, do's and don'ts. The Torah is Yahweh showing Israel how to make their life sweet. Torah means to show, to instruct, to point ultimately to Christ, as Paul tells us. And I think this is so helpful for us to see as we view God's law. God's law is a blessing, not a burden. 1 John 5, God's laws are not burdensome. They're life. They teach us how to commune with God. Well, chapter 16, Yahweh provides bread and meat. Right there, according to verse 1, they're a month out of Egypt with little food. So again, they're hungry. That's not the problem. Their lack of faith is the problem. Right? Because the God of the plague certainly has the capability of providing food for them. But they, they won't believe in and, and Moses is so repetitious here in his words. I, I think it's parallel to what he did about Pharaoh in the plagues. Because I think Moses is showing us that Israel is as stubborn in their grumbling as Pharaoh was in his refusing to let Israel go. In verse 3 of chapter 16, for the second time now, they use the, I wish we died in Egypt and been saved from all this hassle argument that they'll use at least five or six more times in this narrative. They're so ungrateful. And so Yahweh promises to provide them bread from heaven, manna. We, we know obviously this points to Christ, who is our true sustenance, who came down, of he, down out of heaven to satisfy us. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. But I think oftentimes we, we get this symbolism backwards. You know, we think, okay, so, so here in Exodus, God gave Israel manna from heaven. And then during Christ's ministry, you know, Christ is reading the book of Exodus and it's like, oh man, that's a really good illustration. I'm going to use that. No, no, it's, it's backwards. It's Christ here in the book of Exodus decides, I'm going to temporarily satisfy my people with a sustenance from heaven to get them longing for a better bread, to symbolize my coming, that I will satisfy them with myself. They obviously didn't just want bread. They also wanted meat. So God gives them quail in verse 13. And one of the main reasons that God is doing that, according to verse 4, Exodus 16, 4, is to test them. Uh, Literally, God says, let's see if they'll obey this this manna Torah, this law about the manna, uh, to see if they're going to obey my law from Moses. And they not only disobey this manna Torah, they also disobey the Mosaic Torah. They fail on both accounts. They're supposed to gather manna just for one day, their daily bread. But of course, some were greedy and tried to gather too much and it went rotten. Then, then God says, on Friday mornings, I want you to gather for two days because you're not going to work on Saturday. I'm going to give that as a day for your rest. But obviously, some don't do it. They show up on Saturday looking for the bread. They're really just incapable of obedience. God says in verse 28, how long will you refuse to obey? But despite their unbelief, despite their rebellion, God continues to provide. Look at chapter 17. Again, God leads them to a place where there's no water. In verse 2, the people fail the test. In fact, they test Yahweh. Like a child, that you, you tell the child, don't touch that. And they're like, they're testing if you're going to see if you're going to do anything to see if you're going to punish them. That's what Israel did. 
It gets so bad, Moses starts to crack as well. He's like, they're going to stone me, God. What am I going to do? As if Yahweh couldn't protect Moses from the Hebrews when he protected him from Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian soldiers. So Yahweh says, notice verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock. I think that's Christ. Right? When we have, in the Old Testament, when we have Yahweh manifesting himself in human form, standing on something, I think we're to understand that's the pre-incarnate Christ. Moses struck the rock and water came out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, then another provision, verse 8, Israel wins its first military victory against Amalek. Can't fully discuss everything, but right, it's, it's God, you know, wiping out these wicked people on Israel's behalf. Uh, this is not an unjust war because it's not the Hebrews fighting here. In Genesis 15, 12, God told Abraham, Right, I'm sending you down to Egypt so that the iniquity of the Amorites will come to its fullness and then I'm going to send you to wipe them out. It's Yahweh destroying the Canaanites because they were wicked and deserved to die. Well, in this battle, you remember the story. The staff of God needed to be raised above all things. Moses explains in verse 16 that the staff represented Yahweh's throne and God wanted them to understand that they needed him in battle, that he was... The only thing that mattered in their victory. So Aaron and Hur had to hold Moses' hands up in the air until they had victory. And that brings us to chapter 18. We're getting there. <laughs> We're going to make it. Chapter 18, two more things. Really interesting. I think Jethro gets saved in this chapter. There's a little bit of debate here, but notice in, in verse 10 of chapter 18. Right, Moses had sent his family, Zipporah and the kids, back to Jethro during the time of the Exodus. And then Moses recounts to Jethro all that God had done. Jethro sees the multitude of Israelites. And Jethro, who's a priest of Midian, says this. Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. For in this matter, they acted presumptuously against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. That's a special provision. That's a special grace of God on Moses' behalf. And then lastly, wisdom. God provides wisdom. Moses is overwhelmed. The people are overwhelmed. And God, through Jethro, gives Moses the advice to, to make decisions through a plurality of elders. Right? One elder can be wrong and often is, but there's a strength in a hundred elders. Right? There's strength in a, in a multitude. And again, just by way of application here, it may seem like we kind of stepped down a little bit in this last wonder that we had like the Red Sea and the plagues and now it's like, oh, God's just providing water. and He's just, but even though these seem like lesser miracles, we should not be less thankful, right? God gifts us with these tiny acts of providence a hundred times a day. We need to beg him to give us faith to, to see his hand in everything he does, the big miracles and the little miracles, 
and thank him and praise him. Well, what's our so what? The, the New Testament has so much to say about this portion of Exodus. Quotes Psalm 95 so many times, which gives us the so what of the Exodus, which is so today to us right now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not commit an act of unbelief, which fully grown will lead you down the path of unbelieving Israel. God says, they saw my works for 40 years, but refused to believe. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds us, all of Israel passed through the sea. They all ate the same manna. They all drank the same water, but they refused to believe. They grumbled. And Paul urges us, do not be like them. Do not crave what they craved. Do not be ungrateful like them. Paul says those things happen to them as an example to us, to urge us to believe in Christ, to trust in his death and his resurrection on the third day, and to to live our life in thankfulness to him. This is a matter of life and death. Jude 5, which I referenced earlier, says this, "I I want to remind you that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who do not believe. So be careful. Just because you experienced some external blessing from God, just because you saw one of Yahweh's wonders, does not mean you will be saved. Just because you experienced the blessing of Christ and the communion here, the brethren, just because you call Jesus Lord and prophesy in his name, does not mean that if you stop believing, you will not end in judgment. If you do not believe in Christ, you are lost no matter how many of Yahweh's wonders you have witnessed because salvation is found in trusting in Christ's sacrifice alone. So the author of Hebrew ends our discussion with these words in Hebrews 3.12. So see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See to it that you don't end up like Israel and hear God say, I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Beg God to give you faith and then bow low in thankfulness. Marvel at the wonder that Christ redeemed you by his death. Thank him and demonstrate that thankfulness and grateful obedience. Let's pray. Father, your word is life. It is light. We thank you that through your spirit you have helped us to understand it. And we beg you for more strength to obey it. In Christ's name and for his glory we ask. Amen.